This is the Education Gadfly Show. Great. Oh, anyway, wow, you that one made that it through our editing gauntlet. Uh, oh, I just stopped sharing it with everybody. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Emily Hanford, the Senior Education Correspondent and Producer at APM Reports. Emily, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. And also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hi, Mike. Hello, hello. <laughs> so Emily is is kind of famous now in our world uh, after producing the documentary called Hard Words, Why Aren't Kids Being Taught to Read? I will say, though, Emily has been producing great radio documentaries for many, many years, uh, and people should go back and listen to them now that, that listening to radio is popular again. There's a big archive there. It is, and no, a lot of great stuff, uh, and, and new other new stuff that you've got out just recently, right? On, yes. Uh, you do both high red and uh, k-12 we do it all we have a season of documentaries that come out every fall so this is one of those very nice okay but we are going to talk about reading so let's do it on ed reform update All right, Emily. Well, this documentary has gotten a lot of attention, which is uh, music to my ears. Uh, In it, you basically make the case, or your reporting makes the case, that even though there is this very solid evidence base on how to teach little kids how to read, that includes uh, doing all kinds of foundational stuff around decoding and phonics and phonemic awareness, it appears that there's not a lot of that uh, being taught in our schools today. Uh, So, say say more. What what did you find? And and didn't we... Solve this problem like 20 years ago? Yes. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons there's been a big reaction to this program is I think it's a problem hiding in plain sight. And I think uh, two things. I think a lot of people know it's a problem. And, and those are some teachers, many parent activists and advocates, mm-hmm. especially for kids who have learning issues, lots of researchers, lots of policymakers. It's not news that this is an issue, um, but I think we've been kind of ignoring it or pushing it aside or thinking it was okay or covering up with other things. Uh, for some reason, we're not addressing this very well in our schools, and, um, and we should be. So those of us here at Fordham, we are obsessed with reading uh, because, of course, it matters so much. But I guess my impression was, well, we did have these reading wars and that the National Reading Panel in the late 90s and then Reading First, part of No Child Left Behind in the early 2000s, put some of this to rest uh, and that you did see a significant shift in how most of the major publishers dealt with this issue. You saw a big shift in teaching and you saw some big improvements in fourth grade reading, especially among the lowest performer. I always made it feel like, Hey, maybe we've actually figured out this part of it. The, the, you know, the, the foundational stuff, you know, you take a kindergartner, first, second grader, teach them how to decode the language. Uh, you know, we, uh, colleagues like Robert Pendicio, you know, we've argued for a long time. Well, maybe we've got the decoding down. Now our problem is comprehension. And that's because uh, we're not doing a good job uh, building vocabulary. You've got to do that by teaching things like social studies and science. Our elementary schools don't do that. But, but your reporting really says, no, 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 don't think that we've actually solved the decoding part. That is still a problem uh, that what the, the truce that we found in the early 2000s was in papering it over by calling it balanced literacy, uh, which doesn't actually do enough decoding. 
Right. And I, I think it gets even deeper than that. So I think we we have included phonics in name. You find it in the standards. You can find it in curriculum. Yeah. It's on every, the cover of everyone's book. But I don't think it's deeply understood by mm-hmm. teachers um, why phonics is important and how it should be taught. So, And I still think there's a lot of resistance from educators and also from teacher educators, mm-hmm. which we can talk about later, that uh, means that teachers aren't, they don't really... Not all of them. There's a lot of exceptions, and there's no way to say definitively this is the way reading is being taught. As we know, there's right. a lot of variation. But I think there's a lot of indications that typical reading instruction includes phonics in a fairly surfacey way. There's either right. not enough phonics being done, or it's really not being approached in the right way. It's not being approached uh, as essential as it is. Mm-hmm. And that if you really dig into what is going on in a lot of the approaches to reading instruction and the curricula, what you find are essentially whole language language beliefs, the beliefs about how children learn to read Mm -hmm. and thus how they need to be taught, I think are still much more deeply anchored Mm -hmm. in a basic whole language philosophy, which is that kids pretty much learn to read as long as they get enough good practice and some guidance. Most kids will be fine and there are going to be some kids who struggle, but I think it's really the reverse. (laughs) I I think some kids are fine when you just kind of leave it to them, but most kids are going to struggle some and sub kids are going to struggle tons. And as you know from the research, good phonics instruction, good phonemic awareness is good for all kids. It's doing no harm to children. Yeah, no. And, and that of course kids do not learn to read naturally Right, human beings have only been reading what I mean, a handful for 10,000 years uh, at Absolutely. a mass level for what, like 500 years. I mean, this is a brand new thing, and it and really is. And this is the, this naturally. is one of the most profound things I think to understand. And this yeah. is the big aha gee whiz moment. It was for me, yeah, I know it is for a lot of other people, and I think that's one of the reasons why I focused on, on in, in the documentaries because I want people to understand that. Because when you understand that, yeah, a lot of other things fall into place. You're like, oh, that's why yeah. we really need to teach children to decode. And I think even when teachers understand it, they can start thinking like, huh, the way that I'm teaching reading is Mm-mm. kind of assuming that it's natural, and, kind of, sort of, and I should think differently about it. There can be this upper middle class bias. I mean, I remember... <laughs> going through my ed school classes when I was getting my teaching certificate and learning about Piaget and all the other classics that you learn. And and there were these ideas about how, you know, how kids learn. And it appears sometimes to parents, I would say, especially upper middle class parents whose kids have been read to a ton, who maybe have a very large vocabulary themselves, that it seems like magic that they just learned how to read. Uh, When really what's happening is that, yeah, they're being taught to decode And it goes quickly for them because they sound out the word and they're like, oh, I know that Tyrannosaurus Rex. Oh, I know exactly what that is, right? Whereas, uh, you know, maybe for some other kids, they sound it out and it doesn't go ding, 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 ding. But that doesn't mean you can't, you know, you don't do the decoding. We have a phonetic language now with all kinds of weird rules and exceptions. It's super complicated, right? Um, and, And yet we're not getting it done. And so then you have kids who are going through elementary school into middle school, probably high school. You probably saw some kids like this, David, and as you were a teacher, right? Who still were struggling with just sounding those out, much less going on to the more complicated stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to know what to do at that point. I I guess my, my question is, you know, what, what is the, I don't want to get you in too much trouble here, but in your (laughs) mind, what is the main holdup here? Is it, um, 
Is it resistance or is it lack of full understanding and, and internalizing? You know, I think the good news is, and this won't really sound like good news at first, but I think the bigger problem is ignorance, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yep. good news yep, yep. <laughs> because it means people can be taught. And I think there's a lot of just ignorance. And I don't mean this as a, as a, a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. I just mean ignorance as in you don't know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of teachers just don't know because they weren't taught this. Right. Uh, and it's not part of the culture of the schools where they're getting professional development. It's not the way that other teachers are telling them the way you teach reading. So, so many teachers, I think when they're presented with some very simple ideas like learning to read is not natural, start to really go, aha, and many of them have this feeling like, I knew this wasn't working for a lot of kids, Mm. but I didn't know what else to do. And I think one of the things that's happened in this country is that we sort of dismiss our low reading scores like, well, they're not really going to get that much better. Like, maybe they'll get a little bit better, Mm -hmm. but we got a lot of poverty. We got kids coming to school with lots of challenges. All that stuff is real. Poverty does impact how well kids read. All the stuff of vocabulary and background knowledge, that stuff is really a real part of it. It's not just about decoding. But I wanted to say something uh, that you were talking about, Mike, in our, you know, sort of our good school systems in our affluent suburban schools where this whole language stuff sort of... Mm works because it seems like these kids are coming in and they're learning how to read. Well, two points. One is people really can't see the way that their kids are learning to read or that the way they did learn mm-hmm. to read. So there's not as much of an acknowledgement of how much instruction and learning has really happened. And maybe some of it's happened informally with parents. Mm-hmm. But I think another, the reason I got so obsessed with this topic is because last year I did a, a documentary about kids with dyslexia. And it was the moms, pretty much all moms, of those kids who are in good suburban schools, mm-hmm. quote unquote good. Uh, many of these moms were very well, you know, wealthy, mm-hmm. affluent, had the time, had the money, read to their kids when they were pregnant. Yep. And their kids still couldn't read and said, so there's something wrong. Like, I did everything, quote unquote, right, and my yep. kids still can't yep. read. And I think, unfortunately, some of our, quote unquote, good school systems maybe are sometimes the worst mm-hmm. when it comes to reading because they kind of, because many of the kids do do okay without yeah. a huge amount of yeah. instruction. And it's the parents of the kids who aren't doing okay in spite of all that who are pointing out the problem. Yeah. And they're the ones that pointed out to me, this is really a core instruction problem because what our kids need a lot of, your kids need some of. Mm-hmm. And the reason my kid with dyslexia is not getting identified in this school and is not getting help is because this school doesn't understand how kids learn to read. I mean, this was the, the, the great line by Reed Lyon, who was, of course, shepherded a lot of this research and at the National Reading Panel saying that, you know, for a lot of these kids, they don't have a learning disability. They have a teaching disability. We just did not teach them to read appropriately. And I agree about the ignorance that I don't feel like teachers are ideologically predisposed against this. By the way, same thing when it comes to content knowledge. I've always, I love E.D. Hirsch, uh, Don Hirsch, and a lot of these things, but I've never quite bought the argument that is that teachers, you know, ideologically don't believe in teaching kids history and science. I didn't, they just don't know otherwise or they're doing what what their schools do. Now, where the ideology comes in is in the ed schools. You know, why aren't they teaching uh, these basic foundational skills? Why do they seem so wedded to some of these whole language ideas? Or, you know, they think it's sort of below them to teach teachers how to do these things that are very practical. I mean, I don't know. I don't get any of that. Even on Twitter, you've seen some of your reactions, people claiming that the National Reading Panel findings had been debunked. debunked. Or that, well, let's, you know, you, which evidence are we talking about? That's your evidence. That's not our evidence. And then this thing about how, well, you know, part of the problem here is that phonics is seen as a right-wing thing, right? So here we are, Fordham sometimes seen as a right-wing thing, usually not by our friends on the right. But anyways, uh, what? why is this ideological? What, what is this? How did phonics become something that's 
considered conservative? Well, I think it's because uh, it's rooted in this idea about how kids should learn. So I think this idea is that phonics is sort of traditional and old fashioned and a kind of rote. And if a teacher is standing in front of the classroom in front of a blackboard, that that's not the way kids should learn. That they, you know, we learned about Piaget and kids should yeah. construct their own knowledge yeah. and they should do projects and hands on learning and they construct their own meaning. And I'm not demeaning that because I want to walk into a classroom where there's some of that. Yeah. I think kids do learn a lot of stuff on their own and hands on activities are wonderful. But you want to walk into a kindergarten or first grade classroom where a portion of the day is this teacher standing at the front of the room teaching kids things or in a small group or or actually probably both probably some combination of the two because i think that's Mm -hmm. how you hit all the needs of the kids in your classroom so i think it i think it is tied up with some sort of sense of like some old-fashioned way of doing things and then no child left behind and reading first and the reading wars brought in all kinds of politics so there's all kinds of ideas that there are commercial programs out there and people making money off this phonics thing i mean bottom line his ear is there's a lot of money in education a lot of people are making money off of a lot of different things right. you can't dismiss bad. something because yeah. people make money um but i that really keeps coming back like this is people just trying to sell phonics programs yeah. and i don't even know where to begin with that argument because yes uh you, you people are selling <laughs> programs but you know what's the program what good is it doing is there a, is it have evidence behind it man we need to rebrand this somehow maybe we could come up with something called montessori phonics <laughs> And that would just well, be confusing enough to people that it might be popular. You know, I, I think to, to read from what I've heard, reading is being taught quite well in some Montessori so there schools. There you go. That's the um, <laughs> Always looking right. for a solution here. Yeah. All right. Well, Emily, again, great work. It's, it is a little bit upsetting to those of us that have been watching this for 20 years that we have to go at this again, but so be it. And I think a last thing to say is just to reiterate that point, to not blame teachers for this. Because right. I think that's where we get in a real yeah. But can, can we blame ed school professors? We can blame some of them, although I have to say I think there's hope <laughs> there too. Because I think some of the ed school professors who come in and really teach the reading instruction, yeah. a lot of them are former teachers and former administrators. They kind of know in their gut a lot of this stuff wasn't working either. Yeah. And like teachers, I think many of them are open. I think it's sometimes these people who've got the PhDs and have been writing in a sort of whole language way for their entire career or who have a program they're selling based on those ideas yeah. that don't want to give it up. And by the way, once we get kids to decode and they're off and running, absolutely we want to expose them to all kinds of fantastic literature and other kinds of writing. So and you can the expose agreement. them at the same time. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. you read to That's kids. Right. Read you you, you yeah. read complicated books to them. You read them chapter yeah. books starting when they're young. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much again, Hem- Emily Hanford from APM Reports. Uh, check it out. Hard words. Why aren't kids being taught to read? Hope you'll come back sometime. I would love to. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Just had a great conversation about reading. Did, did you have yeah. some kids in your high school literature classes that were still Struggling figuring out how to decode? Reading. Well, not decode, not but they were they, just really slow readers. Yeah. But I think they could decode. They just weren't fluent. Yeah. Fluent readers. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess that's the right term. For us to dig into another day. But what do you have? Uh, <laughs> what do you have Beautiful for us instead? I was not my best ever, was that's it? That's all right. Well, I had to start thinking, is that the right term when you're fluent? Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, right. Like yeah, you yeah. can't read fast, but right. you know what the word is. Yes. Anyway. Oh, we have a new study out by TNTP called the New Teacher Project. Uh, I think they used to go by TNTP They used now. to be the New Teacher Project. They're now TNTP, just like Dunkin' Donuts is going to be Dunkin' 
Really? Yeah. It's just All a guy right. somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, involved. Okay, yeah. well, that's who the report is by. Anyway, it's called The Opportunity Myth. It takes a close look at classroom instruction in five school systems, one rural, three urbans, and a CMO that works with schools across the country. Nobody's named. So just for inquiring minds, keep inquiring. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the authors assess three areas. One, whether students were doing what they were asked to do. Okay. Two, whether they were working on grade level content. And three, whether teachers were using practices that gave students, quote, the chance to do most of the thinking in the lesson. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just going to say real quick up front um, that it's sort of a non-research-oriented audience, the report. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Most of it, the ins and outs of the methodology are in a separate report, not linked to the actual report. So you kind of got to go digging for the Mm -hmm. methodology. I think I'd characterize it more of a call to action. Mm -hmm. Okay, So I'm a big fan of TNDP and all that. But And and keep in mind, they they tend to get a lot of attention for their studies over the years. I mean, what we always made them interesting was they were not a think tank like some of us think tanks. They are out there working with schools. Uh, first That's started right. to be rolling about, up their sleeves, doing the real you know, work, recruiting teachers, placing teaching fellows. Now they do all kinds of work on curriculum and professional development, all kinds of other stuff. So they're they're out there in the trenches. They are in the trenches. So all I'm going to say is, just for people like me who like to know about the methodology, it would be great if it was just a little bit more was included in the actual report. Mm-hmm. But I digress. Uh, the study includes 24 schools total with teachers volunteering in each school to take part in the study. And then the teachers then choose two classes that are going to participate in the study. And then they choose six students to collect work from for the TNTP staff. Okay. Okay. They're supposed to be, pick these kids at various achievement levels. And then they take a picture. They photograph these assessments. Kind of mm-hmm. a neat little way to kind of get around the volume of stuff they're trying to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, they photograph it. Uh, and then TNTP evaluates the rigor of the assessments via one of their rubrics that they've apparently been using for years. Mm-hmm. And they also rated about 900 lessons, which is pretty impressive. Um, and they had at least two classroom observations in over 400 schools. So they've got kind of a bunch of different, you know, mm-hmm. uh, data sources. They also equipped grade 6 through 12 students with a watch. To respond throughout the day about what they were doing, thinking, wow. and how they felt. This must have cost that's, a bazillion dollars. <laughs> that's Impressive. Kind of a neat little part of it. Uh, and then the younger kids didn't have the watch, but they filled out a little short survey at the end of class. Okay. okay. And said, answer the same thing. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Uh, which They're is feeling like they wish they had a watch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, a few of the findings. Number one, over 90% of kids say they plan to attend college and mm-hmm. there were no big differences by race. Mm-hmm. Number two, about half of the grade three through 12 kids earned an A or a B in ELA, but this didn't equate to better performance on the state test. Sounds like a report of ours recently. Mm-hmm. For example, 29% of A students did not meet their state's definition of grade level proficiency. A students, Mm -hmm. and half of students who typically earned a B in math and ELA did not meet the ACT or SAT college readiness benchmark, similar to kind of what Mm -hmm. we see. Mm -hmm. Number three, students receiving passing marks on 71% of their assignments only met grade level standards on 17% of the same assignment. So in other words, I think what happened where was TNTP used this rubric to judge Mm -hmm. whether it was a grade level assignment and found Mm -hmm. that few of them actually gave the kids the opportunity to just demonstrate that because Mm -hmm. they were so low level. So in other words, the kids are doing well in their schoolwork. Right. It's just that the schoolwork isn't at grade level. That's right. Mm -hmm. Number four, in classrooms that are, I guess, deemed the top quartile for instructional practices, which I think is they looked at the assignments, they Mm -hmm. deemed these were, you know, better uh, classrooms in terms of the rigor. Um, Only 31%, no, in classrooms in the top quartile, it was they were 31% higher than the classrooms with weaker instruction. So in other words, you know, you've got, there's some difference in the top quartile and the bottom in terms of the level of uh, Of assignments they're giving. Yeah, okay. 
Number five, uh, let's see. Classrooms with more students of color tended to have even fewer opportunities to to do work on grade level. And then they give you this factoid of the 180 classroom hours in each mm-hmm. course subject, students spent nearly 133 on assignments that were not grade level appropriate. Now, I, I got to get a briefing on this study yeah. and I asked about this point. I said, okay, but we know that kids of color on average tend to be much further behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you would expect that it, you know, that they're not going to be doing grade level work as often. Mm-hmm. I said, did they control for that? They said, yes, they controlled for prior achievement and that uh, even uh, controlling for prior uh, achievement, achievement, you saw that kids of color were less likely to be given yep. uh, grade I level do assignments. I reading that in the report. Which is important. So That's an incredibly yes. important uh, hugely, point, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, I think that was that was mostly the gist. And then the, the recommendations were basically we need, kids need more access to grade level assignments and we need to maintain high expectations. So, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, um, really amazing stuff in there. I will leave others to decide uh, whether all the conclusions they drew can be drawn from right. from the study they did, but but look, the basic pattern makes some sense. I mean, we know you know grade inflation. We know the, the grades that kids are getting uh, tend to be quite high. This concern right. that the assignments that they're getting uh, tend to be pitched too low. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you do feel for teachers though, right? I mean, we we know what what do you do if you're a ninth grade teacher and you've got kids who are reading and doing math at a fifth or sixth grade level? That's right. Uh, it's a real. And many of them dilemma. were asked. Honestly, I didn't fit that in. Uh, they said they were four standards, but they felt like, I can't remember that exact percentage, but it's a pretty decent number of teachers who said that the standards really weren't appropriate for for the kids they were teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yikes. Yeah. I mean, I think this gets at, in many ways, the core of, I almost want to call it a messaging challenge mm-hmm. for reformers and for, I mean, and I don't, I'm a researcher, I don't use, I don't talk about messaging challenges very often, mm-hmm. but I really think that's what it is because, uh, you know, to your point, Mike, if the kids are three grade levels behind, realistically, you're probably not, I mean, you may not give them grade level material, but it's mm-hmm. so easy to fall into the trap, like you say, of then aiming too low. Mm-hmm. And so it's very hard for, I think, people like us to articulate what exactly are we trying to say here, yeah. right? And I think what we're trying to say is keep pushing it, right? Like yeah. keep right. the keep your foot to the gas, give them the most rigorous mm-hmm. material you can possibly get them to, mm-hmm. to, 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 to handle, that you can find it in your, you know, in you mm-hmm. to teach them. Um, and 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 trying to somehow strike a balance between realism and um, I don't know what yeah, the idealism yeah, but, or or, or hope, know, look, right? Look, you know, Mark, Mark Tucker wrote the other day that in the high, in highest achieving systems around the world, you just do not have this situation where kids are getting to middle school two mm-hmm. or three grade levels behind. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so the other question is, what can we do in our elementary schools to get kids caught up uh, before they move on? I have a few ideas on that in this I week's do. Education Gadfly oh, that you might want to check out. <laughs> it involves more time, more time as in a second, uh, second grade. Oh, but anyways, wow. You can that check one made that it out. through our editing gauntlet. Uh, oh, I just stopped sharing it with everybody. <laughs> oh, stopped sharing no. it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I only say that they they did. I mean, I thought for TNTP, they have a discussion here about scaffolding. That that's been everybody's yeah. answer to bringing up kids, you know. But but that we don't do it well. We really don't know what it means. Yeah. And even they admitted that they've been trying to teach teachers for years how to scaffold yeah. well, and they just they I, don't really <sighs> know how to do it. Again, one of these great. things. I feel like I, I buy it. For little kids, I think it gets uh, much harder yeah. when kids get older. So let's do it when they're young. Yes. Yeah, I agree. <sighs> the wow. message is to elementary school teachers here yeah. to keep pushing. All right, everybody. Thanks, Amber. Good yes, stuff. Indeed. Good stuff to NTP. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. 
The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.